Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? This whole party. Down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? This whole party. Hello, and welcome again to Down with D&D. I'm Sean Merwin, here with the affable and ever-brilliant Teo Sabadilla. Mr. Sean, how are you doing, my friend? I am mostly, the, the neurons are mostly firing in the correct direction at this point. So we're Sweet. going to call that a small victory. When it gets yeah. this close to the end of a year and the holidays, things start to kick in. Uh, things start to shut down, uh, not just business-wise in a lot of places, but also uh, mentally for me specifically. So uh I'm going to hold it together today, though, I promise. It's the most wonderful time of the year. That's what they, that's what they tell me. I hear yeah. it everywhere I go. Um, Listen, so. we've got spice, spiked eggnog or spice to your choice. Right. Could I have both? Uh, my kids are producing a steady stream of cookies. Oh, well, there you go. Um, it is the most wonderful time of the year. Uh, most of my shopping is done. I mean, mm-hmm. Pretty much all of it. It's actually just waiting for things to arrive. Right. It's been a little different year. Yeah. And this was the year that I tried really hard to not use Amazon, Mm. uh, which was rewarding emotionally. But boy, you have to give everybody more time to send you stuff. It is. It is true. There have been a lot of boxes coming into the Merwin household. That's for sure. The cat loves it because the cat uh, decides that every box that comes in, he's like a 30 pound cat, but anything shoebox sized or bigger, he is in it. And uh, nice. it's, it's it's not pretty. <laughs> but we do have some pretty news this week. Pretty news coming in from D&D. Uh, the first of which is yet another hire at Wizards of the Coast. Um, Amanda Heyman joins Wizards of the Coast team as Woo! a senior designer on D&D starting as of a week ago today. And uh, Amanda began or at least came into prominence um, in 2015, when she joined Paizo uh, full time as an assistant developer, and she came to my attention most recently when she became editorial director at Cobalt Press in July of 2020. And I thought, oh, what a great addition. And uh, then not just a few months later, she is moving on to be the senior designer there. That's great. Uh, always nice to move to different opportunities. Um, that's awesome. She's a great hire. Fantastic. I'm, I'm looking forward to see what work she does. I always lose track of what was, you know, there are always hires that just sort of happen. And then there are people who sort of, um, were the person who made it in through one of those hirings that we saw publicly and shared on the show. And mm-hmm. I can never remember which is which. So I'm always curious, like, oh, did she beat out all this competition or was this one of these things where they're like, oh, this is an excellent fit and I can never figure out which is which. But either way, this seems like a really good fit. I'm looking yeah. forward to it. And I mean, what an exciting time to be getting into uh, D&D at Wizards of the Coast specifically with with all the hype around the brand. Uh, yeah. So many opportunities to you know work on the role playing game specifically. Sure. But also, you know, branch off into different areas and, and work on sort of different projects. Uh, yeah very excited for her and then i'm thinking oh who's going to be at cobalt press right exactly because tune uh, in next week (laughs) yeah well i mean you know they have a lot of stuff coming 
they're in the pipeline right now. They've got yeah. their Southlands, and they have Meghan Markle over there, um, who is an, an incredible editor. Um, so I, I have no fear that they can get the stuff done that they need to get done because they've yep. done it before. Uh, but you know, if they have a huge amount of work in the pipeline, um, it'll be interesting to see who they bring on to help with that. So the industry keeps on turning. Indeed. So tell me about the Adventurers League Feast of the Moon holiday event. Yes, this is one of these fun events that they do on certain holidays. holidays. So Adventurers League has provided uh, sort of small encounters that you can deploy during any normal adventure. It's just an extra thing you can throw in as a fun experience. And you can use this Feast of the Moon holiday event until January 4th. But you get an extra week, an extra seven days, if you make any donation to or aid a cause, such as a children's hospital, so extra life counts, food bank, anything like that. There's a long list on the website of, of what you can do. So if you spend time, if you spend money, um, you get an extra week to run these things, which is kind of fun. And the first wave is a game called Wild Hunt. And in this event, everybody's going on a sort of game of hide and seek and everybody gets a role, it's pretty creative. Um, and you get special role powers if you're the hunter, if you're the prey. Um, and it's sort of a mini game that you get to play in the wild, uh, snowy wild. And then you, after you resolve it, everybody gets a Feyhound collar, which is an uncommon magic item that can create a green mist around you for 10 minutes, which is kind of cool. Yeah, perfect for hiding yeah mm -hmm. uh next our friend dm david had a new blog post up on using the small world principle to build a better game um now this blog post came from a twitter topic that uh had gone around for a while and it's really good advice not just for game designers adventure writers but also for fiction writers um, where if you can use fewer npcs because rather than spreading out the awesomeness you are concentrating the awesomeness into fewer npcs that you have to remember that gives the pcs more interaction with those npcs makes those npcs feel more invested in the story and gives the characters and the players a better connection to those NPCs. Yeah, absolutely. I, I really, really liked this blog post. Um, it's one of those things that sort of isn't said loudly enough, even though a lot of us sort of think about it. Um, and it made me think a step. Uh, he also talks about locations, though most of the, the blog is focusing on NPCs. And it made me really think about a problem that I've often struggled with designing, which is that, and this is true of most, most fifth edition adventures, where you kind of start out in what should feel like your home base and almost immediately leave it. Mm -hmm. But you're supposed to care about that home base. And everything takes you away from it when actually everything should be focused on it, right? And we can, this happens in Rhyme of the Frost Maiden, right? We see sure. this where it's, it's all about saving the 10 towns. What's the first thing you do? Well, let's get out of the 10 towns, right? When are you coming back? I mean, every now and then we're going to sort of hand wave that. And that uh is is a thing i think that that our industry could do better of of reflecting your home base and making it matter 
Mm -hmm. um, and one of the ways you can do that is by having these NPCs really stand out, because I think a lot of times the de design is as if these NPCs are going to really be memorable and be visited often, when in reality, you get very few minutes with them. And so if you have a bunch of them, it's even worse. It's even more diffuse of an experience. But if you concentrate those NPCs together, then they're more memorable over time. And especially if you give them ways to keep contacting, use things like the franchise rules, then it, then it makes a difference, right? Yeah. That, I, that brings me to The Mandalorian, which I'm not going to spoil, but the latest episode. I can't believe he died. Rather than <laughs> bringing in a new... NPC per se, right? A new minor character. Yeah. They went back and reused an old one with all the tension that that, that brings, uh, all the story that that rekindles uh, is a, is a great point. So yeah, I, I, you know, I didn't, I hope I didn't spoil anything there, but yeah, you didn't, you know, good storytelling tries to do that as much as possible. Yeah, and, and you can, and he also discusses how you can have lots of NPCs, or you can have a number of NPCs that you cast out, sort of like throwing out a net, but then the ones that register, those are the ones that you then move plot points and uh, information that the PCs are going to get. You, you, you concentrate it onto those NPCs that were of interest, right? Mm -hmm. And yep. that's a great way to do that. Absolutely. So thank you, DM David, for yet another interesting and informative blog post. And our final bit of news is James and Trocasso's My Dad's Monster Manual. <laughs> this is just, this is such a cool idea. And uh, I've seen a preview copy of it, and James absolutely nailed it along with his father, of course. So if you don't know, uh, what James and Trocasso did was he took the Monster Manual from Wizards of the Coast and showed it to his father and said, okay, dad, what are these creatures? What, what's the story behind each of these creatures? And then he took his dad's reaction and rewrote the monster based on that. So in some cases, they're pretty close together. But you see things like the Mind Flayer or the Beholder. And those yeah. things get a really cool rewrite uh, based on what uh, James's dad thought that they would be. <laughs> And this is, like I said, this is just such a great idea. And one of the cool things that you can do as a DM, one of the biggest tools that you have to keep your players guessing and to delight them and to terrify them is to take what they think something is and change it. So yep. if they have a company of hobgoblins marching in, giving one of them some non-standard thing just take a take some other totally random monster and make that monster stat block fit this hobgoblin even if you have to give them you know a magical staff to do something that the monster that you took could do it keeps them on their toes it makes this a more non-boring game yeah and this is what james did with this my dad's monster manual because now you have all these monsters and you can do something totally different with them yeah, it's, it, it's really fun. Someone on Twitter today had this idea where you suddenly throw your players into what seems like an alternate reality where all of the monsters are from my dad's monster manual. Right. And so they're like, wait, it looks like a beholder, but it's not. Or you know, right. you, so every monster would be different until they you know do something and can get back to their normal reality. But I thought right. that was a really great idea. 
I mean, even today, James put up a preview with the owl bear. Yeah. And, and so his father saw the picture and said, well, obviously it's a, has some owl features, but it's a bear. And so the story that he puts behind it makes it a little bit more of an intelligent creature, um, something that you can talk to and rationalize with. And so you could totally do that in your game without having to do an alternate reality or anything. You can just say, there is this owlbear, but he maybe talks to you. Yeah. And, and that, again, just twists what a longtime player would expect yeah. and makes the encounter and the story you can tell much, much cooler. And two fun ways you can do that is any kind of exposure to magic could cause a creature to be different. Right. Mm -hmm. So you could give it a, an origin story. It's a little bit like a superhero type take. Right. Right. Um, the other idea is to have uh, an intelligent magic item that somehow interacted. Right. Like what if the owlbear swallowed an intelligent dagger? Right. Right. Um, or I think it's uh, some Waterdeep uh, Dungeon of the Mad Mage has a, a thing with a sword, an intelligent sword that kind of binds with the creature in a really fun way. Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, those kinds of ideas are good ways to explain how a monster can behave atypically, right? Yep. So uh, that is available as of, well, tomorrow of our recording, but it will be available by the time this show drops. And if you would like a discount, you can subscribe to Mr. Introcaso's mailing list to get 25% off. So check it out on the DMs Guild. It is my dad's monster manual. Yeah, 80 new stat blocks and just the cutest thing ever. Yep. <laughs> And going from the cute to the mechanical, we are going to dig into the next part of Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, which will today we will cover the Bard's new optional class features and subclasses. So, Sean, I thought we were skipping Tasha's this week. Were we? Yeah. I mean, I'm good either way. Well, I, I think we should just. Do the bard. Hit the bard. Let's do the bard. We'll, we'll hit the bard. And then we will hit. Uh, we tried to do too much of Tasha's last week is, is essentially what happened. We love all things. We do. We do. We just want to talk about everything. So the pretty thing in front of us at the moment is what we're going to talk about. But I'm going to be a taskmaster and we're going to do one of each. All right. So here we go with the bard. Um, the two, well, the three optional class features. Uh, first, at level one, you get 15 additional bard spells, uh, two of those spells being from Tasha's new spells. And I didn't see anything to... Um, nah, it's fine. Yeah, too out of control mm -hmm. about that. Some of them, obviously, should be bard spells because they're very, you know, mind control uh, social sort of spells. So it's all good there. The spells are already in the game. What's... Uh, yeah, I mean, what's, what's these are... Uh, I have a, a, a love-hate... And I don't care. <laughs> Generally, right. I'm like, whatever, it's fine. But I also worry when you enroach on areas that like, I, I know there are a number of clerics that with great pride use the aid spell. Mm -hmm. And because it's a very powerful spell to use to, to, to kind of pre-heal your party. You give them maximum additional hit points above their maximum. Mm -hmm. And now the bard, any bard can do this, right? Not just a type of bard, but if you allow for this optional class feature, all bards now can aid as well. Yeah. And now that's great if you don't have a cleric, but if you do have a cleric, it kind of, you know, enroaches on their territory. So yeah. it's one of those things that I would think about as a DM, 
you know, it's a little, okay. It's a thing to think about. I mean, let's just say it out loud, role-playing games, especially like D and D they are complicated machines. And when you mess with the machine that's in front of you, there are consequences. Maybe consequences are enjoyment and efficiency go up 80%. Maybe it's the whole break game breaks down depending on your particular situation. So, you know, anything you change, you need to then step back and reflect on what that change has meant to your game. Yep. Yeah, uh, absolutely. At, at level two, magical inspiration is an optional class feature. So if a creature has your bardic inspiration die and casts a spell that restores hit points or deals damage, uh, that character can roll that die and add to the resulting restored hit points or delta damage. Ooh. Yeah, hmm. I'm hmm. I so there is a subclass currently called the College of Valor that the Bard has. And one of the benefits of that class specifically is um, the inspiration die given by the College of Valor Bard can be added to the weapon attacks of uh, the character spending that die. To the damage, yeah. Yeah, to the damage. And I'm like, yeah, okay. You know, it's it's a subclass. It's something that especially people that crit a lot, they will hang on to that die because then, you know, when you're rolling that extra D8 and you crit, you can roll it twice and Hey, you know, double the cool. Great. Uh, so this to me, if anyone can do this, what does it say about that college of valor subclass? Yes, it is a little different. Um, and so I would have rather seen this feature added to a specific new subclass. Yeah. Right I, I, I just feel like it, it, this delta blow to the College of Valor, because yeah. when I've played with lots of, you know, I've played with a number of College of Valor bards over my days of 5e, and this is one of the things that they're like, you can add it to damage too. Right. Everybody's like, oh, awesome, exciting. And yeah. we just took that away from them. Like, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're not special anymore. And And you can see what they were trying to do, obviously, by saying, well, you can add this to healing or you can add this to spell damage. So it's different. But it's the same enough that it does sort of take away a bit. Yeah. Um, so, again, it's if you want it in your game, great. Uh, I think the flavor of it's cool. I just would have rather seen it as a, a specific thing for a new subclass, like College of the Arcane or you know, something like yeah. that, rather yep. than here. Uh, at level four, you get Bardic Versatility. Uh, each time you gain a level with an ability score improvement, you can replace a skill with uh expert replace the skill that you have your expertise in or you can replace a cantrip that that you uh can cast with one that you want to be able to cast uh, again n overall who cares right it's it's not that big a deal a player doesn't like a cantrip they have okay good though i've never used this skill even though i took expertise in it can i change sure not a big deal it's just these sort of retconning abilities, as I like to call them, where you get to change something that you've already had. It's sort of a double-edged sword for me. Um, if you're fixing a problem with gameplay, that's fine. If you're, if you're changing it to rebuild because you can now power game, this, this skill is really important at low levels. This score is really important at high levels. So I'm going to switch out. That... that isn't so good only because if you look at the story as a narrative, look at the game as a narrative engine, you, you are breaking that. 
to me. You, yep. you are saying, I am now a completely different character. And it's not completely different, but it's different enough in terms of the the narrative stability that you've been building throughout your campaign. Yeah, it's literally the spell you folk or the skill you focused on mm -hmm. suddenly you completely unfocus on it and you focus on something else. It's yeah. it's kind of strange, right? It, it yeah. is yeah. But so, I mean game wise, and I understand why it exists because sometimes you find it, and I've had this happen in a campaign where there were three characters that all could deal with traps. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden two of them died. And now it was like, oh, actually, the person who was pretty good at traps now needs to be very good at traps. Yep. Well, can I find a way to boost that up? And this might work, right? And, and you have those types of situations. Um, so it's okay. I just, it's, it's that danger that it shifts from being a one-off addressing of a problem to the default. Right. And that is what in people's brains overall, it's not like the one player, but overall, players begin to just tinker with their builds at different levels to maximize it's it's like if you could change your ability scores mm -hmm. every level you right. would always have even numbers yep right constantly right. and you would constantly move your feats around and, and you would you would just why not get another plus one out of it right 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 yeah it's it's hard to hard to try to use rules to fix a problem that you could just fix as the dm by saying yeah go ahead and change that yeah. but like as you said as you, if you formalize it as a rule it it holds more weight than it should yeah so i would have rather just seen the sidebar that, that it says hey if your player is not having fun with their character let them change small things so yeah. they are and, and come up with an in-world reason for it. Exactly. Here's some examples, which we already saw earlier in the book. And so we're good. Yeah. 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 It's a little too formal for me and we'll see how it, how it feels to people over time. Right. But again, it's, it's, it is a formal game. Yeah. So yeah. sometimes there does need to be those formal rules. So we'll, uh, like you said, we'll see how it goes. There are two new bard colleges. First is the college of creation. The cosmos began as a song. And you can tap into the power of this song to create. And I, uh, I just saw like some sort of hair metal video in my mind. Right, right. Uh, so I love this idea in terms of the flavor and fun, right? There's the song of creation and you, you bard, you can manipulate that song. I love the flavor. I love uh, what you could possibly do with that. And then I read the mechanics and went, oh, no oh <laughs> please no and th this is again this is just a personal opinion um it is so the hardest thing to do in D D in game design is to create classes yep the second hardest thing to do is create subclasses as far as i'm concerned and so you know i'm gonna complain about this some people are gonna love it and that's great sure uh, so uh, did you want to talk about it overall, or do you want me to dive into nope, it? No, nope, dive into it. Okay, so at level three, you get the emotive potential. When you give an inspiration die, um, it gives the use of it gives additional benefit depending on how it was used. So if the person used it for an ability check, they can roll the inspiration die twice and take the higher. It's basically uh, you have advantage on your advantage. inspiration die. Uh, if they use it to bump up an attack roll, uh, they... Uh, they can also take an attack uh, of enemies within five feet of it 
Okay, the person, the creature they attacked and enemies within five feet of it make a con save or take thunder damage equal to the die of the roll. So, boom, the song explodes super loud and people around it, uh, around the target take damage. And if they use it to add to their saving throw, uh, the user gains temporary hit points equal to the inspiration die roll. Ideas, good. Uh, way too much. Way too much. I mean, I'm already feeling like like bards will often be the player of a bard will often have a little card to tell you what to do. Mm-hmm. That card just already is big, and we're on number two, right? And 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 even trying to write up how the attack roll benefit will work for somebody. Oof. Yeah, it's it it's right because you the player who's using this inspiration die doesn't know your con save, uh, right? Doesn't know any of this. information so not only do you now have to as the bard have to remind the person hey don't forget you have your inspiration die now oh don't use it on your ability check (laughs) because you can use it on your attack roll later and do thunder damage to all of these it just it's yeah it's too much and and if you love the super tactical game then this is great right if you want to think through all these things and everybody at your table is super into that then this is the subclass for you. Uh, if you and don't, then, it's not. Yeah, and did you cover the saving throw one? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. They gain temporary yeah. points. Yeah. So it's just yeah. This is a lot. This is this is what I would say is is inelegant mm-hmm. design. And as you said, I have all the respect in the world for anyone writing a subclass. It is exceedingly hard to try to make it feel new, refreshing, fun. And this is fun. But it's it to me. This is inelegant. It's going to slow things down at the table. It's going to cause people to want to optimize. It's it's like having five items on the grocery shelf and you have to get to choose one. It's so much easier when there's just a thing and you're happy with it. Right. Um, this is just this menu of options is too much. The other thing is, I'm so far feeling like both of the classes have had subclasses that feel to me heavily like 4E, but without 4E's elegance. Like this is like. It's mm-hmm. these big superhero concepts, right? Like when I give you my inspiration die, there's this song hanging in the air, this magical right. power that's inexplicable. And we just have to sort of accept it. Mm-hmm. It's very grandiose. Uh, and not everybody likes that in their game. That sort of big, you know, when I play an instrument chord, there's a visible power thing somewhere around and then it's unleashed and it can either be this or that. Like it's there's a lot of disbelief here in how yeah. this works. Yeah. And when you combine that, that kind of, it's a little bit hard to believe it's a little super magical and it's uh, hard to use. I think ideas can fall apart. It's one thing if it's efficient, but right. Yeah. That's it. It lacks that, that efficiency. It lacks a little bit of the elegance to get a, like you said, uh, to get across the idea and make it mechanical in a way that uh, is best for the game. Yeah. So at level three, then you get performance of creation. You can use your action to create a non-magical item with a value equal to 20 times your bard level in gold pieces. Uh, You can do it again after a long rest, or you can use a spell slot to refresh this ability. And the item will disappear after a number of hours equal equal to your proficiency bonus. Uh, Again, I love the idea of this. You can create things out of thin air, but... To try to put rules on that 
is is maddening because uh, now you have to flip open the player's handbook. Oh, can I create this thing that is I'm a seventh level bard? Let's see, seven times 20, 140. It's got to be worth 140 gold pieces. Well, what if I want to create something that's ordinary but not in the player's handbook uh, or not in any book? You know, it's it's trying to put rules on something that is just so wide open yeah that it's that it's just hard to do the other thing is it doesn't say so i have two big thoughts one is i generally find characters have everything they need like the way these backpack kits mm -hmm. are given to 5e characters everybody has rope everybody has light everybody has you know a, a utility thing or two it's seldom that someone goes oh i don't have rope or i need it whereas that used to happen in previous editions right where mm -hmm. you didn't have things and encumbrance was tracked more often and, and so it all kind of mattered more to have the ability to just conjure up an item i i don't know that it's super kind of useful um and then the second thought is is there a size limit there is. oh yeah there is yeah yeah and in fact we'll we'll, we'll get to that in just a second because that's uh, the thing I would most want are the things that are bigger. Um, so I'd see it's yeah. large at sixth level, right? Huge at fourteenth level, right? And so it, you know, I've played games where the that are very rules light, where the rules would just say, "Hey, you use this magic and you can create an item, you can create a standard item, and then just let the DM decide what that what that is, or the game master." Uh, and D and D is not that kind of game, but I want D and D to move toward being that kind of game where the, the cool flavor of the class, the story behind the, the subclass is held up by a way to handle things narratively where there isn't a bunch of rules and, and book flipping involved. And yeah. maybe maybe I'm wrong for wanting that. Maybe that's not what a majority of D and D players want. Uh, but if I'm in the minority, I think it's got to be a pretty large minority. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, it's I'm also not sure. Is it? Can it be like a? Could it be like a kit related to a, like a tool, or or is it a single thing? You're, you're talking about what this does? Yeah, like, can I use performance of creation to create an alchemist kit? Probably not. Probably. Because that's, that's, that's not a single item. Yeah, it's not a single item. Right. Yeah, it's it. I mean, and, and it says, you know, for examples of items you can create, see the equipment chapter of the player's handbook. But it just, doesn't say you can only create things. So, yeah. you know, I, I just... I like it. I just want it to be. I want it to. I want the rules to give the DM permission to say yes and no. And I don't know if, like I said, I don't know if D&D is that game at this point in its development. It's hard to think through what is the right balance for it because you don't want it to be a useless third level ability mm -hmm. and, right. and i'm torn in many ways like in some ways you know i want to create 200 gold pieces worth of stuff or whatever my level is you know five right. times blah you know uh 
you know, 20 times on my barred level. So, so I, cause in some ways what would be cool is if I could give everybody a climbing kit, right. Mm -hmm. Or cause those are things that are very useful. Right. Um, and have that balance sort of work out or create an actual alchemist kit because it's worth of material or something, mm -hmm. you know, why when I'm magically creating it, does it have to be a single item versus that much gold pieces worth of stuff. But then of course, if you make it super useful, maybe that gets in the way, but I, I don't know. Yeah. It's, Part of the problem is not not the way this is written. It's just the game itself. Uh, the game itself does not model well on just do anything you want, mm -hmm. uh, which is why things like wish spells are so problematic sometimes. <laughs> because right, this is just a kind of a low level wish, right? Yeah. I wish I had this particular item right now, and and we we all know the problems uh, of those sorts of rules but anyway we need to continue moving yep. on with yep. the sixth level feature which is animating performance Whew. so before i even get into this if your feature takes four paragraphs of detailed rules plus a stat block uh, you may want to rethink how it's presented and what it does so let, i'm going to try to get through this as succinctly as possible as an action, you can take a large or smaller non-magical item that you can see within 30 feet of you and animate it. The animate item then uses the dancing item stat block, which is provided, which also uses your proficiency bonus. The item is friendly to you and your companions and obeys your commands. It lives for an hour or until reduced to zero hit points or until you die. Okay, so you're making this item that dances around. Uh, in combat, it shares your initiative count but it takes its a turn immediately after yours. Okay. It can move and use its reaction on its own, but only the only action it can take on its turn is a dodge action. Unless you use a bonus action to command it to take a different action. All right. Okay. I'm, I'm still there. I'm still okay. Um, that action can be one in its stat block or some other action. It says, oh, okay. So it can either take an action or any action. I don't know what that means, but okay. Now, if you are incapacitated, the item can take any of its any action of its choice, not just dodge. Wait, that, that this throws me completely. So it can only use dodge unless you command it. Unless you're incapacitated, then it can do anything it wants. Why can't it do anything it wants? I guess the idea is it's always looking for your commands. And if it doesn't get them, then it thinks on its own. Yeah. Is the uh, concept, right? But... But it's, yeah, it's yep. a little, it's a lot of words for, does it matter? But wait, there's more. Give if me more. You, if you use your bardic inspiration feature, which is a bonus action, you can command the item as part of that same bonus action with, that you use bardic inspiration. So it's like, whoa. Yep. So, so I understand why they're doing this, right? They don't want you to have to choose between giving right. a bardic inspiration die and commanding your thing. So you can do both, but that's just one more rider on top of things. All right, so once you animate an item with this feature, you can't do so again until you finish a long rest. Uh, you can only have one item animated by this feature at a time. If you use this action and already have a dancing item, then the first one immediately becomes inanimate. So there's a whole lot of things there uh, to get to. You can animate an item and it attacks. Yeah. Um... So there, yeah, I, I've got a number of things. One is, do we really need to have it summon a creature? Because summoning creatures, 
already slows the game down right and should be done very carefully uh, i i don't love that it's it can be large i don't like things taking up a lot of space on battle maps and so sure. on yep. um so that's a thing it's large or smaller but but i don't really love the fact that it can be large that takes up a lot of space uh it also has a always on aura type thing um, when any creature starts its turn within 10 feet of the item, the item can increase or decrease the walking speed of that creature by 10 feet per turn. Mm -hmm. This is, it's, a, it's, it's more to track. It's a, I, like, I almost rather this were not a thing, right? An actual stat block and yeah. that it was just a, a, like an attack you get some sort of benefit you get. Yeah. You know, I, I agree. Yeah. I, I agree. I, again, I want it to be elegant. I want it to catch the flavor of this while still being simple. And, you know, even, even if it was just a stat block, I could almost get behind that. Um, the stat block itself, like you said, I don't want it to do all of the things it does. Um, like, like you said, that whole um, slowing down a creature within 10 feet of it or speeding up a creature within 10 feet of it. So there's one more choice to make. And all I can think of is, okay, I'm like a fifth level artificer, sixth level uh, bard with this college, and then, you know, a fourth level druid. And so I've got, you know, my cannons, I've got my dancing items, I've got my animal companions. It just, yeah. Just so like, here, here's a question. Can I use this thing because it has fly? Can it just fly me around? Right. Can it grab right. me and fly me around? Um, can we use this irrepressible dance to overland move faster? Mm -hmm. Right. There's just lots of stuff that like this, this became a, it's a lot, it's mm -hmm. a lot more than it even seems to be. And it can bring up these questions that are sort of annoying because it's so much to it. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, you know, and in many ways, it's not like we were maybe being a little, you know, we're being picky we're we're analyzing this stuff, but, uh, and. I'm sure someone can play this in a campaign and it's all good. Right. But but the when it comes to, you know, we're talking about adding things to the core of the game. Mm -hmm. And I and I think this feels a little too far away from core for me. Mm -hmm. Right. It's it's super mechanical. It's it's like the it's like what we talked about with the optional features. Uh right, it, it becomes a much more tactical game and if you love that, this is for you, but as part of the, like you said, Teos, as part of the core game, it's not what I'm looking for. Yeah. And at level 14, you get creative crescendo. Uh, when you use your uh, perform a performance of creation feature, you can create more than one item at once. The number of items you uh, create equals your charisma modifier. Uh, if you create an item that would exceed that number, you choose which ones will disappear. So it's just, uh, you can make more than one, but you're no longer limited by the gold piece value when creating items with performance of creation. So you can create a 100,000 gold piece item that will disappear after 14 hours. Can you create a component for a spell? Exactly. Is, is that, so it's platinum bowl time, kind right. of hero's feast every day with creative crescendo? Yeah, it because Heroes Feast is now on my bard levels, on my bard spells, mm -hmm. uh, as a way to make Mike Shea really happy. Right. Uh, so <laughs> then did I just get a free platinum bowl for Heroes Feast? 
yeah it it's the it's the wish problem uh, at a smaller level um this is also one of those things that if i don't use it to break things like creating free heroes feast components um it's sort of like well what am i doing so am i now my let's say my charisma is you know plus four am i creating four backpacks for people or four you know like is this really a level 14 benefit mm -hmm. if i'm not if i'm being really reasonable and not doing anything crazy then i feel like this is really weak like hey everybody have a i don't know i made you all cups of coffee you know oh wait that's two items <laughs> i made two of you cups of coffee <laughs> one yeah. cup the coffee yeah enjoy you know like I, I don't know what i would do with this feature right yeah i mean if if as the dm you don't want it to be broken it sort of becomes weak for a level 14 thing and yeah. if if you let it get too out of hand uh like oh i'm going to make a ten thousand gold piece diamond yeah here i just bought all right it. oh it so anyway uh next week we will talk about the other subclass because i want to get into icewind dale and the next one is going to be the college to which you and i belong the, the hello <laughs> hello how do you say that eloquency yeah, Eloquency. The College yep. of Eloquency, um, which we'll talk about next week. But now we are going to go into the frozen north and cover more of these exotic locations set forth Get in Icewind Dale. Spoilers. Rhyme of All the right, So Mandalorian, what happened was... No. <laughs> All right, so if you are playing Rhyme of the Frostmaiden and you do not want to hear about these locations, now's the time to check out. Thanks for listening. But for those of you interested in what we think about these places of interest, hang around. We've covered six of them, I believe. So let's get into the next one, which is Yarlmoot. So the tall tale that leads you here is frost giants ruled this land long ago. Their leader, the Jarls, would meet atop a hill to the west to settle disputes. Their thrones still rest on that hill. Uh, do you want to talk about what the quest yeah, the quest is really interesting. A frost druid, Yselm Bloodfang, is actually in league with Oral. And so her only reason to lead you here is so that you will die. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and one of the things that the text doesn't say to you is, hey, what if you figure out that she's lying to you? Right. Which is really kind of important. Yeah. Uh, I actually think that's totally cool. And I wish that there had been a little bit about this because it, it, one of the things that happens, you have this sort of like, oh, frost druids, it can be bad or good or whatever. And um, and they're following oral. This is a great opportunity for them to learn about the frost druids and oral. And I think it'd be really cool to have Yuselm just say straight up, like if you realize she's lying, she's like, well, uh, I had a vision that you should go there. And, and, and you, you know, you, but you sense that there's more to it. And then you press her and she's like, so you would die. It's your role. I have seen it. You yeah. must go there and die. Right. And, right. and just no, no bones about it. You know, it's the way it should be. Right. Right. Like, yeah, I think that would be she, actually kind of cool. And she's and not necessarily, you, she's not necessarily going to kill you. She just knows that if you go there, you're going to die. And she, thinks that would be awesome if that happened doing what her goddess has told her should happen right it's very yeah. matter of fact and hey, i'm in a world where we do sacrifices on tuesdays so you know yep <laughs> so exactly so hey let's march off and of course all these cool things are going to happen three times a month <laughs> yeah that's that's the other big thing here and any whether you use a tall tale or a quest 
you really need to take into account the fact that nothing works unless you have a full moon. Mm -hmm. So you got to somehow tip the tall tale should really include that their thrones still rest on the hill and on a full moon, strange things can happen. You know, add that little bit or Yselm tells you to go there and only go on a full moon. Right. And if you, you, you are, if you are like most games, you really don't care about the phases of the moon unless you have uh, a lycanthrope (laughs) in the party. Uh, So you can always just say, Oh yeah. And by the way, of course it is a full moon on the night you're there. Uh, Yep. As, or, as written, or have some sort of other thing like, you know, nothing's happening, but you somehow realize this is tied to the moons. And by the way, here's another fun thing to do that's right next to it. Also be warned that you probably want to be fifth level, um, fourth or definitely lower, that this is going to be pretty tough. For example, um, characters are likely going to be vulnerable to cold damage because that's an, a feature of the area. And the giant that comes to attack them, its stare does an average of 70 uh, points cold damage if you include that vulnerability per round on a failed DC 13 con save. So unless, you're, unless your characters have you know, at least 70 hit points, if they fail their save, uh, this is going to be pretty tough. So you want to give us the story of Jarlmoot? Yeah, so there are seven huge giant thrones sitting on this hill and on a full moon, their apparitions show up and I guess they kind of have meetings. It's like, you know, if you were tied to your office and forced to come back as an apparition on it. Um, And when you show up, one of the things that's sort of bizarre is the text specifically says the giants don't talk to you. Um, Why would you limit interaction? But okay. So I would just undo that and have them, you know, issue a challenge and, you know, you are not of our kind, only the strongest may pass, something like that. But uh, the idea is that the the leader of these, the Jarl of the Jarls, will uh, summon a frost giant skeleton, which by the way, there is a WizKids mini for it, mm. and challenge you. And if you win, congratulations, you get two invisible stalkers who also show up and beat you up. And if you defeat those, then the one of the thrones rises and a staircase is revealed underneath. Mm-hmm. But that may not be all the fighting. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. The, the Frost Giant Skeleton is a fun fight. It's an easy level fight. Uh, the two CR6 Invisible Stalkers is a deadly fight. Mm-hmm. But if they were sent here by the Druid, at this point, she attacks with a winter wolf that is summoned by Oral. That's a hard fight on its own. So mm-hmm. easy, deadly, and hard all in a row. And we haven't even gotten into place yet. So that's a good reason to be, you know, and, and all of these difficulties are based on being level five. So it, it, is, it is as challenging just for level five. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then if you get through all of that, the throne that covers the secret entrance to the dungeon slides back giving you access. Uh, And when you go down into it, there is a short puzzle to open a gate to continue further in the dungeon. Uh, The braziers have runes, and there's a poem telling you what you need. So as long as someone speaks Dwarvish or can cast a spell, they can read this. Uh, If they don't, then (laughs) figure out what you need to do to get this information to your party. I like puzzles like this. It's sort of one of those 
the poem has items so you just need to find those items and put it into the brazier i love these because they make the players feel smart but they're not very hard at all it's not going to take two hours and yeah. a knowledge of you know victorian literature to to figure out the puzzle it's just a cool neat little thing to to give your characters and their and their players a little bit different interaction with the game as opposed to the three combats you probably just had and i love that the the flavor of the puzzle is really fitting with the location all about these frost giants their giant runes involved and cool uh runes that represent things that that they that would be used by giant kind um they give you images of the giant rune so uh, yeah it's really good stuff love this yep and the little dungeon itself uh it's pretty small not not too overly uh complex you just need to sort of find a key here and there to unlock the next room and so what happens inside is sort of less important than what happens when you leave uh, th there is a horn of blasting in in the dungeon and there are it is being guarded by six flying swords yeah, and there's a trick about which key you use so there's a key in the lock of the chest right but if they s did the puzzle before they found an extra key mm -hmm. so they might think and what they're supposed to do is kind of go like this chest is trimmed with silver but it has a gold key so they're supposed to go okay i'm going to remove the gold key put in the silver key then you get the treasure which is here for people to claim uh and then you would put the gold key back to leave and it creates a portal yeah and sort of unnecessarily when you exit the portal by using the gold key yeah. you have a swarm of ravens attack the character and, and until four swarms have been there i'm like do we really need that i mean it's flavorful but there's a lot of attacking going on yeah. so i don't know that i would add that yeah. and then and, you've got your next part right well it's sort of weird the the map you know the the text says if they use this key this portal opens and they can leave but it doesn't show on the map that that exit i don't think so you're not quite sure where they come out or how they would get back in and all of that, like you said, then the ravens attack. And then as they are trying to leave a frost giant who is coming to prove herself and wants the horn that the characters likely found as a sort of rite of passage to rule her um, group. So there's a CR eight fight after probably many, many fights uh, already. And again, when you're in that uh, circle of thrones i believe you have vulnerability to cold damage so yeah. there's more damage that's likely to come uh, from the frost giant yeah so it, it, if you if you like i mean I, there, I love a lot about this encounter it's really cool it's just it's a bit hard so you have to watch that and i think there's some little minor bits to to keep an eye on but but it can be a very very fun location mm -hmm. yep if you add a little bit of interaction a little more interaction like you said with the ghosts you know, have the ghost mention the horn yeah. that then gives a little anticipation to not just what the characters find, but what this frost giant will be looking for when they come in. Yeah. And even when the frost giant arrives, I think for her to just say like, look, you know, sort of, this is the way, right. I must fight you. I have come to prove myself. I can't go back to my tribe without having fought you for the horn you carry. 
Right. You, know, you were not supposed to be able to enter and, and remove it. I have to do this. And I could see a, a fun situation where you defeat her, but spare her life and right. use her later, right? Like have her come and maybe help the MP the PCs, right. right? That could be fun. Exactly. Or hand over the horn yeah. and say, here's here. Now you rule your clan. We're going to be coming to you for favorites later. Oh yeah. That'd be awesome. Yeah. You know, that's, that's a great role playing and it's a great tool that you can have both for storytelling and mechanically later. I love it. Next, the next location. This is an interesting one. Uh, even pronouncing it's going to be interesting. Karkolok. Karkolok, the tall tale that leads you to Karkolok. What, what Peos calls peace out or gnome diplomacy. Uh, <laughs> so the tall tale goblin scavengers prowl the tundra on the backs of wolves or in wagons. They also like to ambush travelers on the Ten Towns Trail on the side of the mountain pass. Well, a group of trappers found the goblin's fortress in the mountains. Someone should go there and wreck it. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, you know, that's it's your typical standard. There's a goblin threat. Let's go take care of it. Uh, the truth is a little bit different. <laughs> yeah, and, and the other, so the quests are that a goblin messenger was found, was captured in Bryn Shander carrying a letter calling for peace and asking the sheriff to send negotiators to arrange a treaty. Mm -hmm. The sheriff doesn't trust the goblins and says, hey, bring me back the head of the goblin chief, Yarbnok. Mm -hmm. um, you could also end up in this location if you do the foaming mugs quest we covered in chapter one and you follow the goblin wagon back rather than attacking it immediately. Mm -hmm. um, and the last link is you can find a shield gardens amulet in the lost spire of Netheril, which we'll cover later. Mm -hmm. And that can lead you to this shield garden here which makes me think immediately, why do we keep giving player characters shield guardians? Yes, that's it's a whole <laughs> other episode. So the the location known as Karkolo, Karkolok, uh, has a secret. The goblin leader ain't a goblin, <laughs> uh, which, is, which is cool. I love that. It's great. This uh, is great. The goblins don't know it, but their chief, Yarbnak, is really a gnome, Spellix Ramwad. What a great name. Yeah. Um, so what happened was, according to the uh, adventure, while crossing one of the passes of the Spine of the World, the goblins dropped an avalanche on Spellix's party. And Spellix uh, was buried but not found, whereas the rest of his group was taken by the goblins back to their lair. Now, Spellix decided to go after and try to rescue them. And that's where things get a little weird. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know how to best describe this. Uh, he, he created sort of a goblin suit out of metal and went in and uh, so long story short, he sort of became their leader. And once he became their leader, he sort of got interested in them. He also found a strange egg-shaped crate and that he's trying to open. So, so this is where it gets weird because the text sort of says, yeah, he went in and he became interested in the goblins and started to really care for them. 
and he really didn't like his companions anyway <laughs> which which what? implies that that they were killed yeah they were eaten it, it, yeah, it says yeah. somewhere that like you know one by one they were all eaten and he just kind of keeps ruling the tribe yeah I didn't like him that much yeah so after doing all this stuff to go rescue them after he was buried in an avalanche he just decides that oh, they they're tasty i guess i i don't know um that's a hard sell for me as written i i need to change that a little bit because especially if the characters are going to uh parlay with spellix uh i don't need them finding out that he basically let his former companions be eaten because that's sort of less of a i think the sympathetic easiest way figure to, yeah i think the easiest way to address address it would be that he arrives and tries to set it all in place and then realize they were already eaten right and then he does, thinks about oh i'm going to go on revenge but actually feels sorry for them mm -hmm. and through both the combination of like well i'd have to flee and that would be dangerous but i also feel bad for him has ended up staying right, right. but now that right. things are going wrong because the 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 rhyme is here and it makes it difficult for the rating to go well mm -hmm. he is trying to think about maybe escaping yeah and rejoining human society but it, it is it is a sort of strange fit because it is right. kind of like how did you make peace of the fact that you've been directing all these goblins to actually raid caravans and so on and now that the hunting has slowed down caravans have slowed down now you want to rejoin human society hmm. right okay. yeah it, it it's a little it's a little odd so you as the dm need to sort of figure out what exactly um spellex personality is what exactly his motivations are so you can present that in a way that the characters won't just want to kill him as soon as they find well, out or lean into that and make him despicable right okay. this, that's this, fine this too right weak spined individual who couldn't save his friends can't it hasn't saved the goblins either and yet many have died at his hand right like through his actions right he's done no actual good and then yeah. so Yep. Yeah. So this is a super interesting sort of conundrum. There's a lot of drama and conflict in the story. And so bringing the characters into that and giving it its due weight in the campaign will be something that you want to do as a DM. So yeah. here come the characters, la di da di da not quite sure what they're getting into, either investigating uh, for the sheriff uh, or just investigating because they were told it was there. There are a lot of goblins along the watchtower uh, leading into the place and they can blow a horn to alert everyone, but the DC for the stealth check to, to get up to it uh, is pretty low. What did you think overall of the area itself? Yeah, it, it's, it's a fun place, right? It's like falling apart due to the weather. Um, it's constantly being sort of repaired and assembled. And, and so it's this sort of ramshackle makeshift kind of place. Uh, the map is really neat. Um, if the, the, what, what's weird is that it's trying to, I mean, it, it, it is trying to address all the possible things. Like you might just show up to check up on it, in which case, you know, 12 goblins on watchtowers with half cover and could alert more, uh, that can be rough. Um, and if all the goblins attack the characters, that could be pretty brutal, mm -hmm. especially if they're fourth level. 
Um, but um, but there's a lot of the, here that I like. I mean, probably the characters will not do just a frontal attack and will find some way to stealth in. And so that's kind of neat. And it's a neat place to explore. Um, there are some really fun things. Like there's a goblin on a warg that when the warg charges you, the goblin falls off and runs away. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is just, that's great, right? Like yeah, that's perfect. hilarious to write that in. Yeah. Uh, goblin healers with a healing kit and a pet mountain goat. Uh, one of them tells fortunes and actually has figured out the chief secret. Right. There's the shield guardians sort of hoisted up on pulleys and levers, and you got to figure out how to like lower it, but then you can't move it because it needs the amulet, which you don't have yet. Right. Um, and if you, if you, you, you might just walk into the place under this diplomacy thing, mm-hmm. which you then go in and have to meet the chief decide what you're going to do and possibly extract them mm-hmm. and which right. the goblins won't like right or you might fight your way trying to kill all the goblins because goblins bad and then you reach the chief and the chief goes wait and tells right. you the story which you might still end up knifing the guy it's right. really interesting yeah it, it is and one of the big reasons that the the uh goblin slash gnome chief is staying around is because he has this egg mechanical egg that he's trying to open and he can't and this sort of this is his motivation he's like what could be in this you know and and it's from the nautiloid that crashed Uh, so he's thinking that there's some great treasure in here that he's putting all his effort into and once you open it there's a gibbering mouther inside so it's all for naught anyway which which really goes along well with this whole sort of really weird and funny and bizarre uh area yeah i mean one thing about this place this would be the best setup you know like when someone's character dies and you have to think of how to replace that character yeah like if you could somehow time it that you've murdered one of the characters and they go into this place and the new character is the gnome okay yeah. right oh yeah. man that'd be the best right yeah the best i thought you were gonna say it was in the egg that too <laughs> but yeah I actually was a little let down by the egg because it's all this hard to open and you yeah know, if you have a knock spell and you know if you if you save this thing which right. weighs 250 pounds and has a panel of flashing lights and yeah you know and you, you take it back uh and, and you're gonna get this thing <laughs> coming out and attacking you okay all uh-huh. right so so there's a lot happening and like I said, you as the DM sort of have to figure out what tact you're going to take and then prepare for whatever the players bring to this chaos. Yeah. But, see, I would make it something much worse than a gibbering mouther. I would make it something that is going to totally decimate this uh, <laughs> this whole place. So when they get it open, ooh, and then it just comes out and just starts just destroying the whole fort and all the, all the goblins and you just have to run. And uh, it just comes falling over, like maybe the whole fort just yeah. crashes down the ravine or something. As, and... as you're as you're running out of it, yeah, that could work. Cool, that could be a lot of fun. Let's do one more. Let's let's Ooh, talk about right. the lost spire of Netheril. The tall tale of this area is: Did you hear what happened to that evil wizard in East Haven? They tied him to a stake and lit him on fire, and you may have seen it. Why? Because he hired some ten towners to help him find a buried tower, then killed him to keep its location secret. Well, one of them told me where the tower's at. I wouldn't go myself, but it's maybe something you'd like to explore. Okay. That's a yeah. that's a good reason 
to, yeah. to go somewhere. Uh, the quest is a hunt for a red yeti. It's a yeti that's so vicious that its fur is stained red with blood from all of its victims. And mm. if you go to hunt this yeti, you come across the wizard's tower. Yep. So what's the story behind it? Well, the story is really quite awesome. Uh, this is a wizard's tower that fell off of a crashing netherese floating city. And it sank into the snow upside down, which is a great concept. Mm -hmm. um, the wizard within died, but its shield garden dug, a dug its way out, trying to find help, creating a tunnel. And then it ended up running out of power. And that's when the goblins found it and hoisted it into their uh, location of Karkalok. Um, and what this does is ties into that whole event we covered earlier, where in chapter one, in one of the towns, the first thing you see is witnessing this red wizard of Thay being killed at the stake. Um, and what has actually happened is that wizard sent a party to find the ruins of the Netherese city. Mm -hmm. And uh, they found... Uh, they found it and set it up as the base and returned to East Haven, which is when he got burned alive at the stake, this wizard Zahn. But Zahn had left in the tower his simulacrum. <laughs> and so the simulacrum lives on not knowing the fate of the actual real Zahn. Right. Um, and, and that's what set up a really very interesting situation where your enemy could be your friend. Right. Or you could have seen this red wizard get burned at the stake. Then you come here and there he is again. What? Uh, and what uh, sort of a wild card in this whole thing is there is a white named Kreentas who's acting as a bodyguard for the simulacrum. And it has the task of activating the simulacrum uh, when necessary. So th that's sort of something you can play with as, a, as the DM. You know, does do you, does he just go activate it? Does he threaten to activate it? You know that that's a question that you can play with. Um, and then if you do, then the simulacrum can uh, interact with the PCs as its own separate NPC yeah. entity. The whole place is super creative. I mean, the idea that it's this upside down tower and there's this gorgeous map that shows you what it looked like on the edge of the floating city and then what it looks like upside down and ice sort of broken, but joined by the little tunnels that were carved by the shield guardian when it worked its way out. Uh, that's really creative. Um, I do think it could use a little more descriptions of everyday objects that are upside down. Mm -hmm. So what I would recommend is when you run this, make a bullet list of sort of things to point out mm -hmm. and you know that are upside down or upended or you know on on the ceiling instead of on the you know which is now the floor uh and and just throw a few of those in every room to keep it real like as they're fighting okay you, you know you move past an upside down candelabra on the ceiling that is the floor right to engage the whatever you're fighting right like just throw in some things like that so that you keep it everyone remembering this place is upside down Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it has the potential to be a really sort of weird um, experience when you're when you're doing all this. Part of me wants to change it. So while the tower is upside down, there is sort of a gravity thing happening. 
Ooh. to sort of make it weird like to see at, at, truly be upside down. at, at certain <laughs> at certain times the, the gravity changes and it pulls you up obviously up to the floor and then changes back down to the ceiling uh but yeah it's something you can tinker with uh as as the dm this is also a place that has some really neat lore and, and lore that sort of piqued my curiosity like oh why are those topics coming up um so one of them is mention of the ferrum which are these horrible ancient monsters that drove the Netherese empire to ruin uh, when Netheril was just huge and was going to be unstoppable. These creatures were battling them and forced them to flee. It's why the host tower of the arcane is in Luska and all kinds of things like that. So seeing them mentioned in D&D products, kind of like, oh, is something going to come around to, are the ferrum going to return, you know? Um, and so that was interesting that just kind of, and I like as a player, as a DM to, to have these sort of books that deal with really ancient, interesting topics. Um, when you find Zan, he will immediately introduce himself. And so again, that may be really interesting if you saw him die at the stake and here he is, but he's honest about his goals and tells you of the existence of the larger Netherese city that has crashed in the Ten Towns region mm -hmm. uh, in Icewind Dale. And um, he has the Shield Guard amulet. He'll give that to you. Um, and what he really wants to do is he wants to be a real boy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, he, I mean, he, he wants what all the Arcane Brotherhood want, which is just to plunder that city. Um, well, but also he wants to become real. Well, yes. Yes. It, th okay. That is true. Uh, but at that point, he sort of, I don't know, is Israel? <laughs> I don't know. Well, the thing is, so there's this rune chamber that's okay. at the uh, one of the bottom levels. Uh, no, actually, well, yeah, I think it's at the bottom level. But there is a rune chamber. And this is a place where if you place an illusion on this disc and you activate this look, this magic disc, something will happen with the illusion, including the possibility of making it permanently real. Uh, because he is a simulacrum, you know, if he dies, he turns into ice. He's not really alive. He's, he's, he's a, you know, a puppet in that sense. Um, if he can have the magic activated by somebody, then, which is the characters, mm -hmm. he might become real. If he comes real, he can use the spell book to learn spells and he can really be Zan. Right. And that's what he wants to do. Yep. Um, but he's not uh allied with the arcane brotherhood in fact if he, if he becomes permanent he instructs the characters to take out the other arcane brotherhood members yep. tells you about them and then says i'm going to go find this lost netherese city at which point he can become a villain um but what's also interesting here is that when you use this magic it can either destroy the illusion zan dies mm -hmm. transform it into a black pudding make it temporarily real for 2d 12 hours or permanently real so there are a number of ways this can play out which is very yeah. interesting yeah there's a 50 50 chance that he goes away uh, if he turns into a black pudding yeah uh so or just gets destroyed so uh get all the information out of him to the players before you roll on this chart just in case uh it goes <laughs> it goes bad it goes poorly one but, other little bit of lore that I really like is there is a novel included in, uh, I think, the room where they find Zahn called Here Lies the King. And it has some information there that uh, reminds me of several plots 
that are in various Sword Coast cities or have played out in Sword Coast cities. And I wonder if that is a new and factual account uh, because it sort of suggests uh, false kingship. So I don't, I don't know if that's going to play out mm -hmm. um, over time. There's also a story of a fallen Netherese flying city called Ventatost, which is not a name that I've seen before when I've read various sources mm -hmm. that fell over Kormanthor 2000 years ago which is after Mithranders created. So I'm not sure what that signifies or leads to, but there are these little pieces of lore in this Lost Spire of Netherall that I just find fascinating. I'm like, oh, is D&D doing something here? Yeah, maybe they are. Hey, D&D movie confirmed. <laughs> it's going <laughs> to take go. place in Icewind Dale, right? <laughs> yeah, and then after all of that, as has been the um, motif for the other locations, as you leave a group of bugbears stumbles across the area and it's basically given to you run run the combat if you want the bugbear leader doesn't necessarily want to fight he's more than willing to uh, be bought for two gold pieces per day per bugbear to become your servants or just give them 10 gold pieces each and they'll leave you alone so yeah, your choice, however you want to run it. It's it's there. Doesn't really add to the story much unless you want that group of bugbears to become a recurring theme. Then you could have them become, I don't know, part of your franchise. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be awesome. I want bugbears in my franchise. Who doesn't? <laughs> when we do this again next week we will continue we're looking at the ragged tribe camp rebels and sky tower shelter and worm doom crag Woo. we're almost to chapter three we are getting there so thank you all so much for your support and for listening uh you can support our patreon by going to patreon.com slash mmp if you're a listener and you're on social media we would really appreciate it if you'd let everyone know that you enjoy the show uh we hope at least you enjoy the show. And if for some reason you don't, you can go to our forums at Misdirected Mark uh, forums and you can let uh, let us know what you're what we're lacking and we can make it up to you. So, Teos, where can people follow you on social media? Uh, if you did not like this episode, I'm at Sean Merwin on Twitter. Please tell me what you thought. Yes. If you do appreciate this episode, you can find me at AlphaStream and uh, tell me what you liked <laughs> that seems reasonable um so i guess now is where i tell you that my twitter uh, handle is sean merwin <laughs> or you can go to the forums like i just said at forums.misdirectmark.com down with dnd is a misdirected mark production the media arm of encoded designs so mr abadia what should we do now let's go kill some monsters with song you done with D and D. Yeah, you know me. You done with D and D. Yeah, you know me. You done with D and D. Yeah, you know me. You done with D and D. You done with D and D. Yeah, you know me. You done with D and D. Yeah, you know me. I'm done with D and D. Yeah, you know me. We done with D and D.